Chapter One of A Coin of Edward the Seventh. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Marcel D. Ward, TheSoulExpands.com. A Coin of Edward the Seventh by Fergus Hume, Chapter One. The Christmas Tree The two old ladies sat in the corner of the drawing room. The younger, a colonial cousin of the elder, was listening eagerly to gossip, which dealt with English society in general and Rickwell society in particular. They presumably assisted in the entertainment of the children already gathered tumultuously round the Christmas tree, provided by Mr. Morley. But Mrs. Perry's budget of scandal was too interesting to permit the relaxing of Mrs. McHale's attention. Ah, uh, yes, said Mrs. Perry, a hatchet-faced dame with a venomous tongue and a retentive memory. Morley's fond of children, although he has none of his own. But those three pretty little girls, said Mrs. McHale, who was fat fair and considerably over forty triplets replied the other sinking her voice the only case of triplets i have met with but not his children no mrs morley was a widow with triplets and money morley married her for the last and had to take the first as part of the bargain i don't deny but what he does his duty by the three mrs McHale's keen gray eyes wander to the fat, rosy little man who laughingly struggled amidst a bevy of children, the triplets included. He seems fond of them, said she, nodding. Seems, emphasized Mrs. Perry shrewdly. Ha! I don't trust the man. If he were all he seems, would his wife's face wear that expression? No, don't tell me. Mrs. Morley was a tall, lean, serious woman, dressed in sober gray. She certainly looked careworn and appeared to participate in the festivities more as a duty than for the sake of amusement. He is said to be a good husband, observed Mrs. McHale doubtfully. Are you sure? I'm sure of nothing where men are concerned. I wouldn't trust one of them. Morley is attentive enough to his wife, and he adores the triplets, so he says. But I go by his eye. Orgy is written in that eye. It can pick out a pretty woman, my dear. Oh, his wife doesn't look sick with anxiety for nothing. At any rate, he doesn't seem attentive to that pretty girl over there. The one in black with the young man. Girl. She's twenty-five if she's an hour. I believe she paints and puts belladonna in her eyes. I wouldn't have her for my governess. No, she's too artful, though I can't agree with you about her prettiness. Is she the governess? Mrs. Perry nodded, and the ribbons on her cap curled like Medusa's snakes. For six months Mrs. Morley has put up with her. She teaches the tricolor goodness knows what. The tricolor? 
so we call the triplets. Don't you see? One is dressed in red, another in white, and the third in blue? Morley's idea, I believe. As though a man had any right to interest himself in such things, we called them collectively the tricolor. And, and Denham is the governess. Pretty? No. Artful? Yes. See how she is trying to fascinate Ware? That handsome young man with the fair mustache and the same, interrupted Mrs. Perry, too eager to blacken character to give her friend a chance of concluding her sentence. Giles Ware of Kingshart, the head of one of our oldest Essex families. He came into the estates two years ago and has settled down into a country squire after a wild life. But the old Adam is in him, my dear. Look at his smile. And she doesn't seem to mind, brazen creature. And Mrs. Perry shuddered virtuously. The other lady thought that Ware had a most fascinating smile and was a remarkably handsome young man of the fair Saxon type. He certainly appeared to be much interested in the conversation of Miss Denham. But what young man could resist so beautiful a woman? For in spite of Mrs. Perry's disparagement, Anne was a splendidly handsome brunette. With a temper, added Mrs. McHale mentally, as she eyed the well-suited couple. Mrs. Perry's tongue still raged like a prairie fire. And she knows he's engaged, she snorted. Look at poor Daisy Kent, out in the cold, while that woman monopolizes Ware. Ugh! Is Miss Kent engaged to Mr. Ware? For three years they have been engaged, a family arrangement, I understand. The late Kent and the late Ware, explained Mrs. Perry, who always spoke thus politely of men, were the greatest of friends which I can well understand, as each was an idiot. However, Ware died first and left his estate to Giles. A few months later, Kent died and made Morley the guardian of his daughter Daisy, already contracted to be married to Giles. Does he love her? Oh, he's fond of her in a way, and he is anxious to obey the last wish of his father, but it seems to me that he is more in love with that black cat. Hush! You'll be heard. Mrs. Perry snorted. I hope so. And by the cat herself, she said grimly. I can't bear the woman. If I were Mrs. Morley, I'd have her out of the house in ten minutes. Turn her out in the snow to cool her hot blood. What right has she to attract Ware and make him neglect that dear angel over there? See? Yonder is Daisy. There's a face. There's charm. There's hair. Finished Mrs. Perry, quite unconscious that she was using the latest London slang. I call her a lovely creature. Mrs. McHale did not agree with her venomous cousin. Daisy was a washed-out blonde with large blue eyes and a slack mouth. Under a hot July sky and with a flush of color, she would have indeed been pretty but the cold of winter and the neglect of Giles Ware shriveled her up. In spite of the warmth of the room, the gaiety of the scene, she looked pinched and older than her years. 
but there was some sort of character in her face, for Mrs. McHale caught her directing a glance full of hatred at the governess. In spite of her ethereal prettiness, Daisy Kent was a good hater. Mrs. McHale felt sure of that. And she is much more of the cat type than the other one is, thought the observant lady, too wise to speak openly. However, Mrs. Perry still continued to destroy a character every time she opened her mouth. She called the rector a papist, hinted that the doctor's wife was no better than she should be, announced that Morley owed money to his tradesmen, that he had squandered his wife's fortune, and finally wound up saying that he would spend Daisy Kent's money when he got it. If it ever does come to her, finished the amiable person. Did her father leave her money? asked Mrs. McHale. He, snapped the other. My dear, he was as poor as a church mouse and left Daisy only a hundred a year to live on. That is the one decent thing about Morley. He did take Daisy in, and he does treat her well, although... To be sure, she is a pretty girl, and, as I say, he has an eye. Then where does the fortune come from? Kent was a half-brother who went out to America, and it is rumored that he made a fortune, which he intends to leave to his niece. That's Daisy, but I don't know all the details of this, added Mrs. Perry, rubbing her beaky nose angrily. I must find out somehow, but here, my dear, those children are stripping the tree. Let us assist. We must give pleasure to the little ones. I have had six of my own, all married, ended the good lady irrelevantly. She might have added that her four sons and two daughters kept a safe distance from their respected parent. On occasions, she did pay a visit to one or the other, and usually created a disturbance. Yet this spiteful, mischief-making woman read her Bible, thought herself a Christian, and judged others as harshly as she judged herself leniently. Mrs. McHale was stopping with her, therefore could not tell her what she thought of her behavior, but she privately determined to cut short her visit and get away from this disagreeable old creature. In the meantime, Mrs. Perry, smiling like the wicked fairy godmother with many teeth, advanced to meddle with the Christmas tree, and set the children by the ears. She was a perfect auntie. Giles said as much to Miss Denham, and she nervously agreed with him, as though fearful lest her assent should reach the ears of Mrs. Perry. She has no love for me, whispered Anne. I think you had better talk to Daisy, Mr. Ware. I prefer... To talk to you, said Giles coolly. Daisy is like her name, a sweet little English meadow flower, and I love her very dearly. But she has never been out of England, and sometimes we are at a loss what to talk about. Now you. I am a gypsy, interrupted Anne, lest he should say something too complimentary. A uh, she Ulysses, who has traveled far and wide. In spite of your preference for my conversation, I wish I were, Daisy. Do you? asked Ware eagerly. Why? Anne flushed and threw back her head proudly. She could not altogether misunderstand his meaning 
or the expression of his eyes, but she strove to turn the conversation with a laugh. You ask too many questions, Mr. Ware, she said coldly. I think Daisy is one of the sweetest girls, and I envy her. To have a happy home, a kind guardian as Mr. Morley is, and uh, she was about to mention Giles, but prudently suppressed the remark. Go on, he said quietly, folding his arms. She shook her head and bit her lip. You keep me from my work. I must attend to my duties. A poor governess, you know. With a laugh, she joined the band of children who were besieging Morley. Giles remained where he was, his eyes fixed moodily on the ground. For more than five months, he had fought against an ever-growing passion for the governess. He knew that he was in honor bound to marry Daisy, and that she loved him dearly, yet his heart was with Anne Denham. Her beauty, her brilliant conversation, her charm of manner, all appealed to him strongly. And he had a shrewd suspicion that she was not altogether indifferent to him, although she loyally strove to hide her true feelings. Whenever he became tender, she ruthlessly laughed at him. She talked constantly of Daisy and of her many charms, and on every occasion strove to throw her into the company of Giles. She managed to do so on this occasion, for Giles heard a rather pettish voice at his elbow and looked down to behold a flushed face. Daisy was angry and looked the prettier for her anger. You have scarcely spoken to me all night, she said, taking his arm. I do think you are unkind. My dear, you have been so busy with the children, and indeed, he added with a grave smile, you are scarcely more than a child yourself, Daisy. I am woman enough to feel neglect. I apologize. On my knees, dearest. Oh, it's easy saying so, pouted Daisy. But you know, and what about Miss Denham? Asked Giles, outwardly calm. You like her. She is a very charming woman, but you are to be my wife. Jealous little girl, can I not be ordinarily civil to Miss Denham without you getting angry? You need not be so very civil. I won't speak to her at all, if you like, replied Ware, with a fine assumption of carelessness. Oh, if you only wouldn't, Daisy stopped, then continued passionately. I wish she would go away. I don't like her. She is fond of you, Daisy. Yes, and a cat is fond of a mouse. Mrs. Perry says, don't quote that odious woman, child, interrupted Ware sharply. She has a bad word for everyone. Well, she doesn't like Anne. Does she like anyone? asked Giles coolly. Come, Daisy, don't wrinkle your face. And I'll take you out for a drive in my motor car in a few days. Tomorrow, tomorrow, cried Daisy, her face wreathed in smiles. No, I daren't do that on Christmas Day. What would the rector say? As the lord of the manor, I must set an example. On Boxing Day, if you like. We will go alone? Certainly. Who do you expect me to ask other than you? Anne, said Daisy spitefully, 
and before he could reply, she also moved away to join the children. Giles winced. He felt that he was in the wrong, and had given his little sweetheart some occasion for jealousy. He resolved to mend his ways and shun the too fascinating society of the enchantress. Shaking off his moody feeling, he came forward to assist Morley. The host was a little man, and could not reach the gifts that hung on the topmost boles of the tree. Giles, being tall and having a long reach of arm, came to his aid. That's right, that's right, gasped Morley, his round face red and shining with his exertions. The best gifts are up here. As the best gifts of man are from heaven, put in Mrs. Perry with her usual tact. Morley laughed. Quite so, quite so, he said, careful as was everyone else not to offend the lady. But on this occasion we can obtain the best gifts. I and Ware and Mrs. Morley have contributed to the tree. The children have their presence now for the presence of the grown-ups. By this time, the children were gorged with food and distracted by many presents. They were seated everywhere, many on the floor, and the room was a chaos of dolls, trumpets, toy horses, drums. The chatter of the children and the noise of the instruments was fearful, but Morley seemed to enjoy the riot, and even his wife's grave face relaxed when she saw her three precious jewels rosy with pleasure. She drew Anne's attention to them, and the governess smiled sympathetically. Miss Denham was popular with everyone save Daisy in that happy home. Meantime, Giles handed down the presents. Mrs. Morley received a chain purse from her affectionate husband. Mrs. Perry a silver cream jug, which she immediately priced as cheap. Mrs. McHale laughed delightedly over a cigarette case, which she admitted revealed her favorite vice, and the rector was made happy with a motor bicycle. It has been taken to your house this evening, explained Morley. We couldn't put that on the tree. Ha ha. A muff chain for Daisy, said Giles, presenting her with the packet. And I hope you will like it, dear. Did you buy it? She asked, sparkling and palpitating. Of course. I bought presents both for you and Miss Denham. Here is yours, he added, turning to the governess who grew rosy. A very simple bangle. I wish it were more worthy of your acceptance, and he handed it with a bow. Daisy, her heart filled with jealousy, glided away. Giles saw her face, guessed her feeling, and followed. In a corner he caught her and placed something on her finger. Our engagement ring, he whispered. And Daisy once more smiled. Her lover smiled also, but his heart was heavy. End of chapter 1 Recording by Marcel D. Ward, thesoulexpands.com.